Welcome to another episode of The Sebastian Show. This week we have on Zane Jan, who is just a badass in the solar space, building one of the fastest growing solar companies and just killing the game. I'm really excited. I think you guys are gonna enjoy this podcast. Let me know what you guys think. So you started in door-to-door. Yeah. Uh, which is probably the hardest, best way to learn sales, in my opinion. Correct. Right? You're just going to get really good really Kicked fast. In the or face. you're not going to make Especially it. Especially in Boston. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> door-to-door yeah. and then you add in Boston. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what? Where did you go from there? So you started there when you were 18. Why did you start in door-to-door sales at 18? Yeah, so similar to you, super rough upbringing. Uh, come from an immigrant family. My dad and mom didn't speak English. My dad was a taxi driver. My mom worked layaway in Marshall. So are you second generation? First generation. First generation. So you, where were you born? I was born in Jordan. So I Jordan, came okay. here. Yeah, yep. I came here when I was six months old. So okay. really, I'm American, but yeah, like that's totally. when I came here. So, anyways, uh, I'm born overseas. I come here. Parents don't speak any English. Where did they choose Boston? Uh, family. So my uncles had came here before, and they yep. kind of were set up here. So we came out here. And what was super interesting about um, the United States for me was the opportunity because where I come from, opportunity isn't really a thing. But Weird. My, yeah. <laughs> but so my... I talk about this all the time. It's yeah. Like, you got to go live in other countries. You'll appreciate the United States more. Exactly. It's like I, I did a post the other day where I'm just like, it was actually about racism and people go crazy on this stuff, right? But I did a post. It was super controversial, got a lot of views and comments and, and you know, a lot of positive, a lot of negative so um, I was talking about racism, and I was like, I'm an Arab. I grew up in the United States, and I went to school during 9-11. Hmm. And a lot of people forget that time, but there was a lot of tension going on in the country, and it was completely fully, like, blame all Muslim people, yep. all Arab people, to a point where you'd walk into school, and legitimately, like, your teachers look at you differently. Like, they don't want to talk to you. They're scared at you. They're scared of you. Especially if your name's Osama or Mohammed or something like that. Tons of that stuff, yeah. right? And I remember looking back, and people were like, oh, how was that period? And I was like, it was all right. Like, whatever. <laughs> like, like, yeah, people called me a terrorist, and I called him a fucking loser. And, like, that's exactly what it was. You know what I mean? I'd be like, no, dude, you're gay. And they'd be like, no, you're a fucking terrorist. <laughs> You know, and, 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 uh, oh, the good old days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was fine, dude. And I got in fights about it and stuff, but like that was growing up. It was just a part of it. Like it's a part of my character and my culture. Yeah. So I made a post the other day where I was like, dude, all of you right now that are like racism because I'm black, because I'm Hispanic, because I'm Muslim, I'm, I'm, I'm treated unfairly. I'm a minority. I'm like, dude, go to another country. You think racism exists here? Go to another country. Right. They will look at you different. They will talk to you different. They will not treat you the same. And, and they won't call it racism. They'll call it normal. Normal. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, we have first world problems in the Correct. United States. Correct. Exactly. We love yeah. Our first world problems. Yeah. It's wild, dude. But uh, going back to my story. So, um, grew up in that environment. Parents never made over 30 grand a year, 500 square foot apartment in a project. Uh, I grew up in a town hmm. called Weymouth, Massachusetts. That's 15 minutes outside of Boston. Basically, all of the Irish population that moved to Boston, moved to a place called South Boston. And as I was growing up, as South Boston was getting gentrified, uh, the prices were going up and it was getting more expensive. So all those people would move to Weymouth. So Weymouth, right behind South Boston, is the most Irish place in the United States. (laughs) So I grew up around a bunch of Irish, booze-drinking, druggy fighters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's like the culture of the town I grew up in. 
Um, but the place Tough that as I nails then. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the place I grew up in, there was a huge opioid opioid epidemic there, mm. and per capita, it was uh, some of the biggest problems uh, in uh, in terms of the epidemic there. So when I was growing up, like you'd walk outside and it was normal to see a needle on the floor. And I didn't really understand it at that time, but that was normal. Or it was normal to see an ambulance come and someone overdosing. You see foam coming out of their mouth and they're done. And then it's like, oh, what happened to this person? They, they died and another family's moving into this unit. So Fuck. that was how life was. And again, at that time, it was normal. But looking back, it was insane. But it built my character. But it didn't start out just like, oh, I'm going to be successful and go into sales. I was an uh, absolute menace in school. I was horrible at everything. I never did my homework. I never, you know, had good grades. I always fought back with teachers. I, you know, one of the first times, I remember a story actually, my first day in school ever. Uh, my parents don't put me in a public school at this time. They put me into an Islamic school. So it's super cheap because everyone in that community is poor. Yep. Um, no one has money. So everyone kind of like donates their way in and like, they just make it happen, right? Like one family's richer than the other and they all kind of help each other. That's kind of how that community works. So we go there and there's this kid named Kareem. And first day, I forget what he did or what, or what he said to me, but he made me really mad and he made fun of me. And I grabbed a toy hammer, but it was like a legit hammer, but it was like a toy one, right? Made out of plastic, but it was still hard. And I just banged his head. <laughs> My first day of school ever. How to win friends and influence people. Yeah, and <laughs> I got in so start. much trouble. They were, they were ready to kick me out. My first day of school ever. My next day in school, uh, we'd all go to the bathroom and the, and the, and the teacher was a, was a female. So she would take us little kids to the bathroom, but we were even though we were super young and like we could barely do stuff, uh, just based on the religion and stuff, they didn't want to come into the bathroom. So they were like, all right, go in and like, we'll make sure you're good. So I went into the bathroom and I'm in there for like 20 minutes and they're like, what's they going on? In. They walk in and I'm in there fully naked. I have all the soap. I have all the soap out of the dispenser on my hair and I'm showering in there. So next day, this is second day of school. They're like, your kid fucked up on day one. Now we fucked up again on day two. So I just kept having these problems as a kid. Same thing. I was, I was uh, looking at a picture the other day and uh, I used to, so when we first moved to America, I lived in the basement of my aunt's house. So, um, my aunt, like as a hobby, she, she would bake cakes and stuff and she would sell them. So she would have all these cakes that she would bake and she would sell them. And it's like, okay, she'd bake it the night before, make sure it's fully prepared. The next day she's delivering it. So at night, I remember one day, uh, same thing. Like all of this was, was within like a three month period. I went up and I opened up the oven and I pulled out the cake and I just started putting my fingers in it. And the next day they had like a wedding or something like that 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 cake was for. So dude, I would just always do these things and be getting in trouble. And as you can imagine, elders are always like, you're messing up, you're doing this, you're doing that. Did you have any siblings? No, I was the only child. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and, and I'm proud to say this, I got my ass kicked, yep. right? Like, dude, I'd, I'd get hit, I'd get a belt, I'd get, I'd get shoes to me, right? Like today you can't do that stuff. It's a huge no-no, but at the time I got this stuff. So my entire life since I was a child was always fighting. It was always like fighting for something. Yeah. And I think I was just craving someone like accepting me because I continued to get rejected. My uncle, every time he would see me, and I don't know what it was, he's a super competitive guy. He'd always grab a penny and he would throw it on the floor and he'd be like, pick it up. I'd go to pick it up and he'd kick me in the back and then I'd fall to the floor. I'd be like, dude, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> and, and, and that would just happen to me all the time. So 
I just got like really gritty and I was just like, I'm not taking shit from nobody. And that's where I just went into this mode of like, fuck everyone. I don't care about school. I'm a rebel and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be me. And I just became like a huge bully. Like I honestly was not a great kid. Uh, even looking back, I wouldn't be friends with myself, right? I was a horrible kid, always fighting with people. I was the kid, I would, I would literally sit on the back of the bus. Someone come up to me, it's like their first day, and they're like, oh, can I sit next to you? I'm like, no. You know, and I was just, I was just arrogant. I was just an asshole. So as I grew up, I started putting that energy in different directions, and the first thing that came in front of me growing up where I grew up was drugs. I was like, oh, cool, we got this weed thing. So, you know, 13, 14 years oh, old. a little bit. Yeah. So 13, 14 years old, I smoke, I smoke my first blunt. I'm like, oh, I like this thing. But first place my mind goes is I want money. Um, my parents are struggling. Every fight they have is about income and money. So 13, 14 is when this started becoming a deal. About 13 was when I smoked my first blunt, probably middle of 13. What's the connection between smoking a blunt and suddenly wanting money? Yeah. To I'll, support your habit? Are you going I'll, there? I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. Yeah. Okay. No, it was at zero about habit. Um, I, I could care less about habit my entire life. I've been addic addicted to drugs and money was always superior to drugs for me. So, um, growing up, uh, I, I smoked this blunt. I'm like calm and you know, we still have all these problems, but I remember every day going home and it's like, dude, my parents are arguing. My parents are fighting. There's always just, you know, issues in the home and it seems to always be about money. Yeah. Right. So first thing I ever did was I smoke. I'm like, okay, this is good. So I said, what can I do? My dad used to come home every single day and he would have this huge wad of cash because he was a taxi driver. Mm -hmm. And at that time there wasn't Apple pay and people weren't right. paying with cards. It was like a lot of cash. So he'd come and every night he would count it. And Monday through Friday, he would just put it in the back of his, of his pocket and he would hang up his jeans in our little bathroom. Oh shit. And that money would always sit there. So I'd always look at it and I loved money. So I was like, okay, I want to be able to buy my own stuff. I can't get the Jordans like the cool kids in school. I want to be able to get that. I can't get the cool Jordan string backpack that everyone's wearing. So how do I get that? I could either steal it or I can make money. So let me make money. So I went in there. I remember until this day, I forget the exact dollar amount. It's probably like 140 or 150 bucks. I grab it out of my dad's pocket and I go. I meet a guy in Quincy, Massachusetts. I give him this thing. He gives me an ounce of weed, horrible weed, uh, mm -hmm. mids, it was called at the time. We put it inside my backpack. I go on an MBTA bus, which is our public transportation, all the way back home. And that same day, I sell it to my friend's older brother. And I make like probably 50 or 60 bucks or something like that. And then I got, I was like, this is the best high I've Did ever had. Put his money back? Correct, and of he, course. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He, he never, never noticed. Knew. No, no, because I knew his schedule. Yep. His schedule was like money, 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 money. Friday, I'm going to count it all up. I'm going to go to the bank, and then I'm going to deposit it inside. So I knew the schedule. And I think I probably, this was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday that I picked up the cash, and then I went and I did that. So that was my first ever transaction. That's where I really learned economics. That was my school. And I was like, this is really interesting. I can buy something that people want. I could do it. I could buy it at this lower price and I could high, sell it at a higher price. And that turned into looking back really small. But at the time, it felt like I was running a huge drug enterprise because I just, <laughs> it went up, right? It went from one ounce to, to, to a quarter pound, to a pound, to five pounds. And I'm like, dude, I'm a big time dealer. And in high school, I'm making good money. I'm making thousands of dollars every week. So yeah. I'm, I'm doing good and no one around me is doing that. So as I got older, that was kind of my business. And then when I was between 15 and 16 years old, 
um, I would always get in trouble in school. And always on the PA system, I'd get a, a, a thing. It was like, <laughs> okay, go to next period. And it would be like all these announcements. And they'd be like, John, come around the office. Zane, come to the principal's office. And that was completely normal. Like, fuck. Yeah, I was like, all right, what did I do now, right? And every time I'd have this pit in my stomach because I always knew I did something, and I'd go in and I'd get in trouble, in-house suspension, out-house suspension, whatever. So I go in, and this guy, uh, th- sorry, not, not uh, this guy, but this, th- this, this woman who was the assistant to the principal always had this chair in front of her in this in this desk and she'd be sitting there and then to the right of her there was this big glass window and that was the principal's office and every time I'd go in there she'd just look at me right just picture like a secretary's desk she'd look right at me like disappointment sit down and then they'd call me into the principal's <laughs> office me and all the other rejects so uh I go in there this time and she's like got this like sad face on her this is really weird why is she sad and uh She's on the phone and she's like, I got your dad on the line. This is fucking like, what did I do? Pick up the phone and he's like, oh, your mom's in the hospital. Can't talk too much about it. Uh, You're going to have to go home and we're not going to be home today. Okay, cool. And my dad's like a Middle Eastern guy, super blunt. Like he's not going to get into it. He's not emotional. Like he's just, you know, that's what it was. To the point. Yeah. So I went back home and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I have zero context about the situation. Just worried sitting there knowing that something's wrong. Then my aunt calls me. And she's like, Zane, um, your mom has some type of complication. We don't know what it is. Uh, she was taken to the hospital, and now she was airlifted to a bigger hospital, Mass General in Boston. It's like, holy fuck. Like, what could this be? And then she's like, yeah, it's like something in the brain, maybe a stroke or something. And then I just go on WebMD. I'm studying it. I'm praying all night, hoping something happens. The next mm-hmm. day I hear that my mom had a stroke. Um, still don't know really what happened. I go in. I talk to this doctor. Her name's Dr. Du. Um, super smart neurosurgeon. I think she was like top five uh, neurosurgeons in the world. And I'm talking to her and I'm like, what happened? And she's like, well, your mom had a brain hemorrhage. Uh, She has an aneurysm. She has a blood clot in her head the size of an orange. And uh, she's fully out and she's probably going to be out for at least six months. And they go, well, she's healthy. She's fine. She's young. There's no, she doesn't smoke. She's never uh, uh, had a single sip of alcohol. There's none of those factors. The only factor could be stress. So I think back to stress and I'm like, I'm her biggest stress and money's her biggest stress. So I got super pissed. Mm -hmm. I was just very, very upset. I remember going into the bathroom in the hospital, punching the, 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 the mirror on the wall, bloody hands, just being pissed and being like, why did this happen? Now that was a very pivotal point in my life because my mom was a portion of our income. My dad was a portion of our income and my dad now had to give attention to my mom. My mom was completely out. That income's gone. So you're not just thinking about the health, but now you're just thinking about survival. You're thinking about like, okay, how are we going to pay rent next month? How are we going to actually get food next month and stuff like that? So that really, really bothered me. Um, and I remember there was like a Thanksgiving where like we had vouchers to get like a free turkey from the school and stuff like that. I hated that stuff. I like did yeah. not ever want to be the poor kid, even though that was my situation at that time. If you ask me, Zane, are you rich? I'm like, yeah, we're, we're like the richest family, right? Because I did not want to accept that reality. So um, all this happens. Did you believe that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I believe you, by the way. Yeah, that's yeah. Just, that's important because I know where you're at now. Yeah, yeah. It starts here. I, I'm that's rich. Powerful. Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I was like, I know we're rich. We don't, we don't have money, but we're rich. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're there. This whole thing happens. This, this, this turns into a two year journey of my mom coming out of a coma, 
uh, taking her to rehab, all this how, stuff. How long did it take before she, she came was out? outside of the home for I think a year and a half to two years? It was how long was she period. was she in a coma? Six months. So yeah. just what what the lady yeah, said. Yeah, what the doctor said. She's like six months or she's dead. Like wow. it's one of those two <laughs> things. Yeah, yeah. It's like wow. that's what it is. So um, I'm sitting there, extremely worried. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the future holds. Uh, but uh, we're taking care of my mom. She's out now. I'm still taking her to rehab every day. She doesn't really speak English at all anymore. She she learned English throughout her life, right? But doesn't speak really English anymore. Doesn't speak her language anymore. Doesn't, uh, you know, remember a lot of mm. things. Uh, can't drive, isn't fully there. And I was like, we're going to get her back. So I just went through a full change, dropped everything and was like, I'm going to make money, but I'm going to go all into helping my mom get back to where she is. And I would say throughout that period, we got her to 95 to 100% of where she was before she had her stroke. That's so incredible. really helped her. So that's 16 to 18. That's a formidable time in your life. Huge time in my life. And your whole world transforms. You found meaning, purpose. Yeah. And it sounds like, I mean, just listening to you and getting to know you, sounds like you were always a good kid in that you certainly had a certain value system and character that was about your family and providing you just that triggered that moment to be just principles. It's like my principle wasn't showing up to school on time. It wasn't doing homework. Yeah. It was taking care of the people around. Yeah. That's like my value system. To me, what I hear is I didn't buy into the system that I was part of. Correct. But it's, I've always found the people around me to be important. Like principally, I'm going to come through for those that I care about. Correct. Yeah. And I was always the black sheep in my family and everything, right? All my cousins, everyone, everyone wanted to go to college, study smart, blah, blah, blah. I was never that. So, uh, 18 years old happens. Um, I'm 18. I'm in high school. Uh, no business getting into college unless it's a community college. I'm not going to a community college. I I made that very clear. Um, I'm just not one of those bums. Like, like that's, that's what I thought of, right? We had this school called Bunker Hill community college. And I'm like, I will never, ever enter that fucking First battle school. of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. Bunker Hill. Oh, re- oh yeah, yeah. So, um, 18, my mom's biggest dream is for me to go to college. So, I'm like, all right, I got to go. Which is like every immigrant parent's dream for their kids, typically. Which but, is so hard because then you got they got you here, right? So, it's like, how do you not honor their desire? And now it's enhanced because I wasn't <laughs> going to go to school. But now it's enhanced because my mom just had a stroke. And, like, this is her dream coming out of this stroke. And all this recovery. And I'm like, I have to do it for her. Didn't care about anything else. It was just that. So I wrote a college essay. And I got in miraculously into a college with a 3.5 GPA. And I probably had like a 2 or a 2.1. How I got in was in the essay, I told the whole story about my mom. But I also told a story about me selling drugs to support my family. And very transparent about who I was, what I did, and my mistakes. And they accepted me. So I go to college, 18 years old. And then I get back into mistakes. So get back into drug dealing. Um, why? Why Why? Why did you go back? I left home, lived by myself for the first time, and I was in an environment where money to me was so crucial because it's like we throughout that period, we never really had money, right? We're still fucking poor and broke. Yeah. Now I have this huge college bill in front of me because I ain't getting in. They gave me a little financial aid, but not but not 100%. Right. I still got to pay my way through. I'm lucky to be in school. It's probably like a $40,000 a year tuition, um, paying for my expenses. And then I understand the importance of money. I've now gone through so much in my life that I know that money 
is the most essential first thing to conquer. Yep. And if you don't have that, all of the other stuff is great and it's nice, but I didn't think that I could ever find happiness without conquering that first part because my entire life, all of the moments that I remember where I was extremely unhappy or there was stress, there was always money involved. So it's all I cared about. I was very money hungry and money motivated. So I did that. Uh, I'm in college and uh, I start playing around in different ways to make money. One was drug dealing. The next way was promoting clubs and bars to get students on campus there. And then yep. the third way was real estate. All of these people, they want to move off of campus after year one that was popular at the school. And they want to move into a house. And they want to rent it with five or six of their buddies. They yep. all split the rent. It's a bigger house. It's nicer. And they can throw parties. So I made deals with landlords. I made deals with fraternities and sororities. And I sold drugs, sold three different things, ancillary products, made a ton of money doing that. But that was the first time ever where I was actually making really good money. I was making six figures at 18 years old. I'm making really good money. Um, I'm not happy at all because I drink every week. I do Coke every day. I do Xanax to go to sleep. I smoke weed every day. I'm just like a full-blown drug addict. But going back to the addiction thing we were talking about earlier, um, I never actually believed I was addicted. I did these things every day, but I didn't think I was addicted. So I become like, I go from like 18 to 19. Um, and during that period, I'm trying to find out who I am. What do I want to do? What's my purpose? And nothing leads me to thinking that school is my purpose. I'm <laughs> like, why am I here? I'm like, I think I'm doing all of these things because I'm fucking bored. I don't go to classes. What I still years don't was do this? homework. 2015. Okay, 2015. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think I'm I'm happy. I'm, I'm 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 I hate the school thing. I don't like anyone around me. I don't like their goals and their ambitions and their dreams and what they're going after. So I am going to drop out and I'm going to move on. I'm like sales. I think is the thing that resonates with me. This is the thing. Totally. And one day I get a call from a friend, and he's like, "I'm in Massachusetts. I'm selling solar, and I made twenty thousand dollars last week." And just like the scene in Wolf of Wall Street, I'm like, <laughs> let me see your check. Let me see it deposited in your bank account. Because where I'm from, people have fake checks and For they sure. bounce checks. So I'm like, <laughs> let me see the check and then let me see it in your bank account. Um, and uh, I'll believe you. And then I'll come and I'll work with you and I'll drop out of school. Sure enough, we met for sushi one day in Boston. He showed me it. And I was like, okay, done. Went to the dean's office. Was like, I'm ready to drop out. They'd give me this long laundry list of reasons why I shouldn't. I'm irresponsible. Life's going to be harder, et cetera, sure, blah, blah, sure. blah, blah. It's basically their pitch. It's their retention team to keep yeah, you back in. For sure. Um, so retention team failed on me. I left college, went all into solar. Now I'm selling solar. Now I'm literally just knocking doors, uh, door by door selling solar. And that's where I learned the most about myself. I learned the type of man that I was because I would knock a door and just like just like we were talking about being in the Northeast, someone would be like, Zane, you're a fucking piece of shit or get off my porch or solar's a scam. And you would just hear all of these negative remarks of people that just, you know, do not want to see you at that moment. And I started to learn, okay, well, if I want to be successful, I have to be able to handle these situations. And if I can handle that person telling me to fuck off, I can handle anything. Totally. And that's when, you know, I went through a lot of things door to door. Like I have crazy stories there, like gun pulled on me chased out with a drill, people calling the cops on me almost every other day, pretty much. Um, but then I got good. 
talking to people, I learned the art of communication. I learned how to persuade someone. And sales goes from a job for me to a game for me. For sure. And I go, That's and I remember, it. and I had my own video game in my head every day. I, I don't think I've ever talked about this <laughs> on a podcast, but I had my own video game. And my video game was basically when you're walking from a door to another door, right? From a house to another house, you're a player. And that homeowner is a player. And the only way for you to actually stay alive is to talk to another player because the minute that you walk from door to door, you're being stabbed. And just like in Call of Duty, when you're being stabbed, this red stuff comes up on the screen and you get stabbed enough, too much red stuff, and boom, game's over. You got to start over, right? So for me, the time walking door between door to door was the time you're being stabbed. And the time when the door was open was your health pack, which means when you had the highest energy point. So that became my video game was contacts. It's not about how many doors I just knock. It's about how many contacts do I have. And I got really good at spotting it out. So I would knock. I would just look for little indicators. I'd see a light on in a window. I'd see a garage open. I'd see a car there. I would look for these little indicators to find contacts as quickly as possible. And then when I would knock a door, I went from, hi, I'm Zane from the solar company to electric bill. And people look at you and just like, go grab it. This this dude just knocked my door and he goes, I I pull out my little badge. I had a little badge here with my solar company name, like a cop. I just like pull it out like this all the time. Cause I, for me, it was a game. It was like a joke. hundred percent. I'm like living in this joke land. Right. So I'd I'd knock a door. They'd be like, who are you? And I'd be like, are you the property owner? They'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, Zane, uh, electric bill, please. (laughs) And people would, I remember new trainees would come and knock with me and they would be like, like, did, did, did that just happen? And yes. the homeowner would look at me and they'd go and they'd get it and they'd yep. bring it. And that's when I learned, I was like, dude, this is a game. I don't need to come and have this huge pitch or anything. If I believe in my product and I have conviction, they will buy 100% of the time. And that's how I mastered that game. Yep. I just became the best salesperson. So I'm working at Solar City, which is owned by Tesla. Yep. Um, Elon's the chairman of the board, his cousin's the chief executive officer, his other cousin's the chief technology officer of the company. Scaling up, there's 12,000 sales reps knocking doors for SolarCity at that time. And I become top on that list. So I'm kind of on that special radar, uh, doing it out of the Northeast, which people are like, dude, how are you putting up these crazy numbers when you're knocking in a blizzard and a snowstorm and these guys are in California and you're beating out their office and they're in good sunny weather. So I do that. I'm making good money. And I remember that year I sit down with one of the directors of sales and he's like, you're the best in my region. Um, shows me his check, makes $160,000 that month. And he's like, you can be here, um, is what you can do. Um, I'm going to make a 90-day plan for you to be a director. And you're going to get all these overrides and you're going to control this side of the region. So cool, let's do it. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm like pumped. I'm like, dude, this is going to be my first million dollar year. I'm going to be making money. Um, I think 19 or 20 at this time. At most, I'm 20. I'm probably like end of being 19 years old. And uh, I'm like, okay, like I can do this. And then I get a call from a guy and he's like, uh, my name is Aaron. We had a relationship from before in the solar industry. I had talked to him before and he was like, and, and I knew him and he was like, I just sold my company. He had a solar installer. I'm moving out to California. I love the market there. I know it really well. I know the install side of the business. 
I have a business partner who's an ex-Wall Street guy who made it huge in the crypto world. Uh, he got into Bitcoin literally the first year that Bitcoin came mm. out, dumped in six figures into it. So you can imagine, like, oh my God. this guy's fucking rich. And he's like, he's going to invest. He's going to start with, like, $2 million in the bank account, and that's how we're going to start. I was like, okay, what do I have to do? And he was like, sell and market. I was like, okay. I was like, can I earn equity? He's like, yeah, if you like do good, you can earn equity. I said, okay. I have zero option I know to earn equity in Solar City. Yep. So I'm going to go and do this thing. So I leave this amazing opportunity to be a director at Solar City to go start completely from scratch. And I had never even visited California at this point. The first time I ever visited California was when I moved there. And that was Walnut Creek, California in the Bay Area. Um, we get out there and we start knocking. That was when I start knocking. I realize, holy crap, these guys are so nice. Californians. Relative I knock a door. The Northeast, yeah. And they're like, um, uh, sorry, I'm not interested. Do you want a water? Are you hot? <laughs> yes, I, I would like a water. And I love when people ask me for water because I'm like, that's a fucking close, baby. Like, get me that water. I'm going to get right in that door. You know yeah. what I mean? So, um, yeah, started selling and I just started recruiting everyone. Uh, from back in Northeast. And mm -hmm. I was like, guys. It must be super hard to recruit people out of the Northeast into California. Actually, like. believe it or not. Yeah, well, oh, okay, you're being, yeah, you're being, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're being sarcastic. 100%. I mean, sure, yes and no. There's a limiting belief side of it. For sure. People over there are extremely yeah. skeptical and they have yeah. a lot of limiting beliefs and they really believe in just staying where they're from and being Goodwill loyal hunting. to their family and their friends. Like over there, people's biggest issue um, which is a good thing is they're too loyal. Yeah. Like they have a friend who completely destroys their life and they're loyal to them because they're a friend. But that's how it is, yeah. right? Um, so I'm in California, but I was just pitching the dream to everyone. I was like, this is what solar is like. You're going to make all this money, burn all your bridges. I do not want you to talk to anyone. Come out here, forget everyone. Only contacts I want in your phone are your mom and your dad. Everyone else, tell them to fuck off. For the next 90 days, you will not do anything other than work. Brilliant. And we made what was called the 90-day blitz at the time. And my one year in college, I was in a fraternity. Um, and one of the best experiences I ever day had. 90-day blitz meant something completely different. Huh? The 90-day blitz made something completely different. Well, yeah, it, <laughs> it, 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 I, I went through something there. And what was really cool was the fraternity I was in, there was no, it was a sober pledge, meaning we had to be completely sober because we had to drive everyone around. But it was military style. It was running on the beach. It was push-ups. It was bows and toes downstairs and hard concrete floor with alcohol all over you, broken glass. Like, it was like military style. And I was like, that made me a great man. I got a lot out of that that experience let me try to replicate that in business now i'm still young so like hr isn't a thing for me you know like <laughs> Clearly. Uh, california laws you know independent contractors none of that is a thing for me at that time i'm just young and so first night we had like five guys uh uh when i recruited this team and i'm like i'm gonna do a ceremony literally did a candlelit ceremony inside my little apartment in how many Walnut guys creek it was five of them yeah Sick. And I made them all read an oath. It was like a pledge to us and the company and how they were going to do this for Did the you rest write of it? their life. Yeah, yeah, whole thing. Literally made a whole pledge, a whole oath, and they all had to sign it. And it was funny. I still remember. We had this little, like, Wayfair table, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there. I would make them get down on their knees and sign this thing on the floor, and then th that's how they would be initiated into our thing. 
Uh, and one of the guys who was with us, he was like super extreme and he really wanted everyone to like get a steak knife and cut a piece of blood to like really do <laughs> it. I was like, dude, we can't go that far. Um, I still remember his name is Zambo. He like, uh, he, he was like, Oh, uh, you uh, don't have a steak knife in here one second. He like went outside, knocked the neighbor's door, like asking for a steak knife. Perfect. He wanted to do this. I was like, dude, stop. We can't do that. But we were really serious about it. And I was like, I have to create a great culture here. So let me imprint into these five guys what success is. So I told him no drinking, no smoking. We all hit the gym at 6 a.m. every single day. We all knocked doors together every single day. When did you cut? You said you were somewhere in there. You were addicted to drugs. How did that? That was college. So, right, but so we're only a year out of college. Basically, drop that, out. Yeah. So, so as soon as I'm about to drop out, I drop everything. Really? Look myself in the mirror one day and I say, I'm not <laughs> doing this shit anymore. <laughs> so to be clear, you drop out of college and you also stop doing drugs. Probably a month before I fully drop out when I'm planning to drop out is when I stop. So, so my last stop month. doing drugs, get clarity and then realize what the fuck am I doing? I'm done. Correct. With school. Well, well, I got the solar op offer before. I love, it. I love it. I got the solar offer before. And then I was like, I don't want to keep doing this thing. And I just looked at myself and I always knew here is a good thing about me. I never justified drugs. A lot of people do drugs because they justify it. Right. They justify why it's okay. And you know, you see this all the time and I hate these fucking guys where they're like, I work better with weed. I'm I'm more creative with weed or, you know, when I do Coke, I'm the, and I'm just like, dude, I don't believe in mind altering things. I do not want to alter what God gave me. I believe in the mind. I respect it. I cherish it. I know it's my most powerful, you know, thing that I have in life. That's got, that's God given. I don't want to alter it. I always knew it was bad. And I think growing up Muslim, mm. that was the greatest thing I ever learned was I always knew what was right and wrong. I always knew what the book of principles was. Mm -hmm. I knew I shouldn't do this, and I knew that I could do that, and I know that this is the way you do things. And in the Quran, it's very clear. You respect your parents. Your mother is the most sacred and holy person in your life that you devote your entire life to. Um, you never touch drugs. You never drink alcohol. You never fight with people. You never create problems. All you do is focused on being the best version of yourself. And I took those principles and I was like, this is who I am going to be. So as I clean myself up, now I'm going into initiating these people mm -hmm. into our company. And like I, what the clarity that I have of what I should do, I want to recreate in them. That's exactly what I do. I tell them that this is what they have to do. Do we have little rules like, you go out, you have to be out of the house at this time, and you are not allowed to come back to the house until this time. And we just made it so strict, and that's how we blew up. Like, we got super successful right away. So the company starts growing, and I get promoted to being chief revenue officer. Fast forward a year and a half into that company. We have 100 sales reps, probably 30 W-2 employees in office, and uh, I'm chief revenue officer. And I've Keep in mind, like a year before all the shit I'm doing, like this is where I'm at now. So now I have to start learning the big boy stuff. I'm like, okay, this is HR. We get our first lawsuit. Now we're dealing with lawyers. Now we have our misclassification between a 1099 contractor and a W-2 employee. Here's what I can't, here's who I can't bring into office. Here's what I can do. Here's what I can't give them. Start learning all the ropes of business, real business. Um, then I start working with our finance partners. I start working with our vendors, our equipment suppliers, and I learn the whole game in and out. And my obsession goes from being a good salesperson, which I felt I had mastered and became the best, and I now channel that into being the best business person. 
And I went through a two to three year period of just studying the business every single day, um, trying to basically be the CEO of the company, even though that wasn't my title. And effectively, that's what I became. I became the CEO of the company. And about three to three and a half years in, I'm talking with the sales team. And one of their biggest issues was that the owners of the company, the, the, the main founders, they really wanted to figure out how to make this thing profitable because they weren't profitable. Um, we were doing good. We had good cash flows, but all the money originally invested was not you know, fully paid off yet. And a big part of that was they were hiring a lot of W2 employees and putting a lot of attention on software and building it, but there was really no great infrastructure there. And even though there was a lot of team members there, there wasn't really results being driven or products being created. It was just a bunch of people having meetings about meetings, trying to create stuff and nothing really getting to the finish line. And uh, looking kind of from afar, I was like, I'm not technically the CEO. These people technically don't all report to me. So I can't just go and butt in on this, but I don't think that this is being done right. And the CEO of that company, um, his company, so his company before that, uh, a guy had basically came in, he sold out of that company, that guy became the CEO, and they started building what what is today one of the biggest installers in the nation. So I was like, it's weird, like he left that company and you know now mm -hmm. it blew up and it wasn't. The company before that, he had an employee-owned company, meaning everyone that joined the company Got had an equal share of the company and they all, like no one owned more than anyone else. And I was like, that's a really weird philosophy. I don't believe that, I'm a capitalism guy. Like I, I don't believe in that bullshit. He was hippie, kind of hippy-dippy. And then I started talking to him and he was like, yeah, like, you know, we have to sell at this price point. We were selling customers at the highest price point. We we're giving them mid-tier tech. And then we were paying the salespeople the lowest comp plan in the industry. Simply to try to true up the bottom line. Correct. Yeah. And try to pay for all this other bullshit that's not working. Yep. Um, and that was the first time where I looked at myself and I was just like, we can't do this. This isn't a good business model. This doesn't work. I would rather be much more lean and just focused on building the best sales team and making a lot more money than having to do all of this other stuff. And that really bothered me. And I just kept pushing back on it. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. Until one day I had a conversation with my sales leaders and I'm just like, what do you guys think? And they're like, we're only here because of you and we're all thinking about leaving right now. And I'm like, okay, makes sense. So I go back. Um, we want to raise capital for the first time. So we're going to meet an investor in Vegas. It's the CEO and me. We're supposed to go out and basically pitch this guy. And that's when I had made the decision to leave right before that trip. But that trip was planned. And I was like, I can't just say like, no. So I was like, oh, perfect. We're going on this trip. We're going to be together on a plane ride. Why, why don't I just tell him on this trip? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I should probably tell him before he goes and pitches that investor because that would be look really bad if the guy said yes. Invest money in us and, and I'm bounce. gone and I'm a huge part of this company. So um, we're on the plane. It's super awkward. And we get there and then so you told him on the plane i didn't tell him anything okay. on the plane i was like sweating bullets and then i we get off the plane we're walking and i'm just like yeah man like i want to have lunch with you um before the meeting's like, okay we get to the hotel and i'm like yeah let's just have lunch here and i just told him straight up i was like there's no easy way to tell you but i'm leaving and he just looks at me and he goes who else is going and i was like i don't know but i imagine all these people and he looks at me like starts crying almost. And then he offers me a major portion of his equity of the company, almost half of what he had in the company to me. And that was the moment where I just realized I was out, but now I'm fully out. 
the fact that he was willing to move on that so quickly and made that decision taught me everything about what was really going on and showed me who he was and also showed me what the company was. And it wasn't his fault looking back on it. It was my fault for not seeing those things earlier and not taking more control. So, so what about him offering you equity was a red flag to you? The yeah, fact that when I asked like to leave, the response back was equity. And whenever someone does that, even in my company, I would never, ever be like, oh, can I give you equity to stay? The reason is because you should only give someone equity when you believe that they earned it. And when you believe that they earned it, you should just give it to them. Don't yep. wait for a bad moment to happen. Yep. So anyways, that all happens. Fast forward. I, I, I leave that. That's a fucking legal mess and a nightmare. I start a solar sales organization. Were you under some kind of non-compete? Is that why it was a legal mess? Uh, not yes and no, but I'm in California at that time. And you probably know this, but like that stuff's not super enforceable and sure you can do it, but it's just, it's a bunch of legal headaches. Yep. Um, the guy didn't want to go through a bunch of legal stuff. Also, they knew that they would have to sink a lot of capital into that. They wanted to just, you know, have a third party come in and kind of talk to us and work something out and, this guy wanted us to pay him a portion of our sales. When I started this new company, he was like, yeah, so give me 20% of your sales and I'll be happy and you can keep doing that. I'm like, for what? Like I'm starting a new company. So we go to start a company. Company's called Better Earth. First day, I take my top directors from that company, all my top employees, put together an A-player team that I've worked with now for the last three to four years and we start Better Earth. First day in business, we have 100 sales reps on board. Damn. So we're like getting big day one. Our first month in business, we're working through an installer. We're a sales organization called Better Earth. The installer is a bigger installer. And we do 150 sales our first month. It means 150 solar homes. Each thing is a $40,000 ticket. Each thing is about a $10,000 kind of gross commission to us. Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing good. We're like, okay, we're, we're, we're making money. Next month is 250. Next month is 350. We now become one of the largest solar sales organizations in just 90 days of being in it because I had one core focus and that was sales and that was mastering it. But I reached the same issue that I reached before when I was personally selling, which was I got really good. I knew what I was doing. I knew I could build the biggest sales organization and I knew I could make a boatload of money. I was like, if this goes wrong, year two, I profit $10 million if this goes wrong. So I was like, is that what I want? And I was like, no, I want to build something that has a multi-billion dollar valuation and is the largest residential solar installer. So I get a call three to four months in and there's a guy named Danny and he was a subcontractor at the last installer I worked with. He did a lot of our install work. Um, and I call him up and I'm like, how's business? It's like, good. I think it's great. And then cool. So we had this conversation. I'm like, okay, like maybe I can offer to buy him. Maybe we could partner. <laughs> and then like a week later he calls me and he's like, you want to buy my company? And I was like, no. And he was like, okay, like, do you want to partner? And I was like, no. And then he was like, so what can we do? I was like, why don't I'm building this thing at better earth. Here's my vision. Why don't you come and be a part of this and we'll absorb what you already have going on. He has a six year old business. He has assets, he has capital in the bank, he has vehicles, he has solar panels, he has a warehouse, it's everything set up. And he has licenses, which are really important in our space. And he goes, what's that look like? And I was like, I don't know, let's, let's sit down. 
long story short, I negotiate a deal to acquire them with equity in our company. Um, we do a merger. We take them over. We give them a minority share of our business, small portion. He comes in with his 40 W-2 employees, and we almost within a one-week period have to switch from being a sales organization to being an installer because the installer gets wind of it and cuts off, cuts us off and is like, I'm withholding a million dollars in commissions, and you guys got to go figure it out. And that's a legal nightmare that just starts there again, right? So now I'm just like, fuck, like now I got to pay all my sales reps or else they're going to leave me. So I got to come out of pocket with all this money we've made to pay them. Business, I have this new business now that I've acquired. Now that's going to take cash to grow and scale. We got to do this right and we have no investors. This is all self-funded and we're putting back every dollar that we make. And that period of time, dude, I just didn't make any money. I literally had a $0 paycheck, just no money. For how long? Six months. Yep. Yeah. So we're just going at it, investing everything back in. I call on, that season the dark winter. And yeah. I had, I had the dark winter myself. Yeah, every, I feel months. like a lot of entrepreneurs yeah. have it, right? And it's fine. It's whatever. You just scramble and figure it out. And what's cool about it is when you lose that cushion, that necessity level massively increases and you do nothing but just trying to figure it out. The father of innovation is necessity. Correct. So I do that. Um, and again, on paper, we're doing great. Chase Bank's looking at us and they're like, dude, you got $4 million a month coming into your account. Like you're crushing it. I'm like, no, but like it, it comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. Um, so we start to build the business and the structure and the foundation going through all of this. We're completely fine. There's days and weeks where it's really scary financially, but we believe in it. We keep pushing. Um, sales keeps growing. Installs is not growing as fast because installs requires buying a lot of inventory, hiring a lot of yep. employees, installers, construction. And we didn't subcontract any of our workouts. So we were doing all of it. So we had to hire all these people, train them, et cetera. So then what happens is I move forward and um, I get to year one. And I'm like, as a business owner, if I truly want to be who I am and who I know I can be, I have to bring in the best talent. Now, I have an unbelievable team already, but operationally, I need someone that's already done what I'm trying to do. Yep. So I make a phone call to a guy that I know. He's built one of the largest installers in the nation as a founder and a chief operations officer. After eight years in, he has a falling out with his business partner, and he's out. And he wants to retire from the industry. He's made enough money. Now he just does consulting for private equity firms that want to invest in the space. And this is what he does. I go, do you want to come work with us? He's like, no, I'm retired. And he kind of, I think, maybe looked down upon us because he was like, I'm this huge installer. I built, you know, a company that's done over a billion and you want me to come work there? Like, fuck that. And I'm like, how could I get this guy? I was like, do you, do you offer consulting? And he's like, yeah, I could come there for a weekend for 30000 a day. And I was like, okay, let's do it. He comes, I think it's on a Friday. We stay there till Sunday night. And we work every day from 8 a.m. to probably 1 a.m. or 2 p.m. Uh, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. on the business's structure. We had a huge whiteboard. We're in Orange County. We're actually down here in uh, Santa Ana. We have a huge whiteboard. And we're just mapping out every system in the process operationally. And he's giving us feedback. After that weekend, he calls me back and he goes, so this position that you're looking to fill, <laughs> um, I might know some people that might be interested what does it look like? How much equity? How much comp? What do you think this person would make? So I, I knew right there and then my intuitive sense told me he's interested. But let me 
f- go along with the story of him yep. referring one of his buddies. So he wants to know what the comp's like. So I give him a good package over the phone. And he goes, okay, I'll uh, think of some people. <laughs> and he calls me back a few days after and he's like, here's the deal. I'm down. I'm a psychopath just like you guys work-wise. He, he works. This guy has like three kids from the Northeast as well. Tr- three weeks out of four weeks is traveling in one of our locations all across the U.S., and just fucking works from morning to night. Like, if I ever want to have a meeting with him, like today, if I wanted to have a meeting with him, it would not be before 10 p.m. Because he's just already packed for the entire day and busy and working. His meetings are usually 10, 11, midnight. Like, that's when I can talk to him. So, um, he's like, there's one caveat. Um, I, you guys got to sell my wife on this. Like, we just had another kid. We got another kid that's going to come on the way. We're playing. <laughs> he's asking you. Yeah, to yeah. He's like, you guys got to oh, wow, sell. Like, kind of. He's kind of <laughs> selling. He's like, we got to do something. And I was like, well, what does she like? Like, what does she want? And he's like, oh, she really likes this new Mercedes truck. And I'm like, all right, done. If that's going to get the deal, we're doing it. So we got her that truck, that Mercedes Benz. And, uh, and he signed the offer agreement. And uh, we started. And year one to two of our business was completely foundation and structure, building for scale. So that's all we did head down. We didn't focus on growth or sales, even though we tripled in size that second year. We just focused on foundation. Year three, we were ready to scale and grow. That's where we're in July. We get to year four and we 3X again. Uh, last year, we did $150 million in revenue. Incredible. Yeah. Um, this year, we'll do close to $400 million. Um, Damn. yeah, we have 600 W2 employees, m- more than 600, almost like 650 now, um, 3,099 sales contractors onboarded with us, 71 companies. So they're all different businesses. They have their own offices yep. and they sell our services and products. Um, and we do all of California. So we have five W, uh, we have five warehouses all across California, literally can cover all the way North, all the way down South, cover that whole geography. Uh, we do Arizona, we do Texas, we do Florida, and now we're opening up all the Northeast. Um, so our business combines of, we're an installer first, uh, then we're a sales company. Our sales company works with our install company, but just like our 71 other sales companies that work with us, our sales company that we own also has an agreement with us that's similar to all those companies. Totally. So we make income on the sales company, we make company on the uh, income on the install company, and we have a software business. Our software business are, is the proposal tool. It uses AI to basically give a customer an instant quote, instant proposal, full-scale CRM within that, and then the sales reps can manage their pipeline. And, and then you built that out? Yeah, we built that. Probably the in, most valuable piece to your company. Correct. So in-house, we have a full dev team. It's based out of Tampa. They have a yep. tech HQ, we call it. There's a bunch of devs in there that just work on this tool. Um, we used to pay a quarter million dollars a month in software that was completely replaced with just our own that we own that yep. we were before paying to third parties. And now what's basically happening is we've done it for ourselves and everyone from the industry is looking in and they're like, dude, this is wild. This tech that you've built, my salespeople see all their commissions. It's extremely streamlined. They know what overrides look like. Also they can see their pipeline. Their customers now have a customer portal they can log in with. They get these proposals like, this is crazy. Can we buy it? So the next evolution of the business, which we're on right Licensing. now, is that we're going to every installer in the nation and we're helping them with the tech side and putting it in. And if you just look at our industry, so usually in solar, it's about a 2X multiple on revenue. Mm -hmm. So we think by the end of this year, just the installation side of the business is worth seven to $800 million. 
Um, the sales side of the business is a lower multiple because it's a cash game and a profit game. Yep. You make, you know, 40 to 50% of your revenue is your profit at the end of the day. So um, that's really just a profit thing. It adds a little bit more value. Uh, the proprietary stuff we had that have there is lead gen and inside sales. We have a W2 inside sales team that calls on at a low cost of acquisition is able to get sales. So that's pretty valuable. Um, but then the tech component, for example, there's a company called Aurora Solar. They only service the U.S. residential solar industry. Um, they do $100 million a year in annual revenue. And their last raise was at $4 billion. So when that gets folded in along with financing, which is 90% of our business is through a finance company, um, it's a pretty crazy multiple, multiple in valuation. People always ask, like, do you have an exit plan? Do you want to sell? Never. There's zero goal of that. I do not put an exit in sight. Uh, the goal is to build something that's as valuable as possible, not just on paper, but in actuality. And the only way that you do that is by building the best product and the best customer experience. So that's kind of what we do every single day. I love it. That's incredible. So why don't you want to sell? Why no exit? Most what does my, it mean? So most of my clients that get a frame is even if they're not going to exit exit plan always have an exit plan yeah. right it's because the it's most you, common because it's how you build your company you want to build it you'll get the most valuation out of your company if you build it with an exit in mind correct and a lot of people get stuck because they they don't know how to get out from underneath their company so it's the most common business saying right always have an exit strategy always yep. have an exit even if plan. you're not going to execute it correct so for me the reason i disagree with that is i know so many entrepreneurs that build their business for exit and they make decisions based on what will get them a better valuation, not based on what will improve their customer experience. And they're not always the same. And they're not the same. And my yeah. thing is, because I trust it can me, be the same, but not always. I get called by bankers every single week yep. to work with us, work on an IPO, work on a sale, work on this. And then they always, they're like, yeah, Zane, let's get dinner. And, you know, I get free dinners and free lunches every week from these people. Yeah. Um, so we'll sit down and I use it to prod and hear what they're hearing in the space in the industry. And every time they're always giving me data that's like, oh, do you see what this company's doing? It's really amazing. We're looking at a $600 million valuation and I'm like, you guys are getting fucking scammed right now. <laughs> You're getting ripped off and sold and you look like idiots. And I tell them straight to their face, I'm like, dude, that's a scam. Like, you really think that this is worth this. They're pitching this as proprietary technology that ain't nothing proprietary about what they're doing there. And I know that. So I see so much, like in my opinion, like fraud in that world of people pumping up valuations. It's almost like crypto. So when I look at that, I hate it because to me, I ask people like, oh, what's your goal? I'm gonna get this big valuation. That's why we built this tech. For me, when I build tech, it's no. I'm gonna make customer experience seamless and so easy that everyone will want to use my tool. Beautiful. So for me, and maybe it's the same thing that people try to get with their exit strategy. Just for me, a lot of times people are thinking about the biggest number. They're not thinking about the best result. And I think when you think about the customer experience in mind, you will always get the best 100%. result. You'll get way more customers coming to you, way more sales coming in the door and a lot more revenue just by creating the best product. Agreed. I say this all the time. Focus on being the best, not first. And first will be part of it. Correct. And a lot of people focus on trying to be first at the cost of being the best. Correct. Uh, so I, I like that. And I like we that. don't let anything, anything stop us 
from creating a good customer experience. It doesn't matter what amount of money we have to, you know, put into it. It doesn't matter uh, uh, what amount of resources and people we have to hire in time or, you know, a hit on profitability we have to take. Customer experience is always our core factor. We care about everything uh, that is customer experience related over anything else in the business. And that's led us to where we are today. People are like, how have you had this fast growth? Just to give you like a, a, a sample size, there's 50,000 US solar installers, meaning companies that can install solar. We're top 15 in under four years. 50,000? Yeah. That's crazy. It's insane. But if you think about it, it's not that crazy because when you think about it, a lot of mom and pops. HVAC companies will install solar. Electrical yeah. companies will install solar. One man shows. There's a yeah. lot of those, right? Um, we're top 15 in the U.S. right now. Everyone else on that top 15 list is over a decade old. So yeah. we're we're dominating. We're moving really quickly. Um, but going back to the exit plan and exit strategy, just the way I am, um, and maybe you've noticed this in my story, but I'm a really extreme person. I push things to the limit, and I am the type of guy that will either die, in my opinion, one of the richest, most successful people on planet Earth because I will go all in until everything falls off and I don't have this worry or this fear of losing everything because I will take that responsibility and that ownership. To me, you know, there's many easy ways for me just to take out. There's always easy paths of like, Zane, why do you do this? Why do you put yourself in this pain and this misery every day? Why do you have to handle all this bullshit? Like you could just be chilling right now you may, you've made all this money. You can continue to make this money and it could be so much easier. Get thee behind me, Satan. When I hear that, I'm like, I don't want just, I don't want to hear and, But everyone voices. says that like, dude. It depends, it depends if you're mission driven, right if you're now. purpose driven, that, that doesn't what even I'm saying. come it's, into play. It's, but, but it goes back to when I was knocking doors. I was a player in a game. I'm a yeah. player in a game right now. Yep. And why would I want to end the game? I like playing it and I want to play it until I die. And to me, and, and I tell this to people, because trust me, when I'm dealing with these bankers, they're saying, what's your exit strategy? And I tell them to their face. I'm like, I don't buy into exit strategies. I don't believe in it. I believe in value. Yep. If I provide value, okay, value is truth. Truth always prevails. So yep. value always prevails. Yep. I will win if I provide the most value. And I if you don't it. believe in me, well, we don't have to work together. Yeah. That's just my mentality. I love it. Zane, this has been awesome. We could keep going, uh, but uh, we got to stop. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to, to getting to know you more and, and uh, have another round because I have a lot of questions that we didn't get to get to and a lot of different sections of uh, your business that I'd love to deep dive into. But appreciate your time today and we'll love continue it, man. the conversation. I appreciate your time, brother. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for it. Absolutely.